Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. This week on Babel, John talked with Sunil John, who runs the Arab Youth Survey, about this year's results and the methodology behind the survey. Then, John, Natasha, and I talk about how we do research on a more individual level. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Sunil John is founder of Asta BCW and the president for the Middle East and North Africa for BCW, one of the top three public relations firms in the Middle East. He has been running the Arab Youth Survey for 12 years, and he's our guest today. Sunil, welcome to Babel. Thank you, John. Such a pleasure to be on your show. So you've run this survey of Arab youth. What's the background of the survey, and, and why do you do it? You know, way back in 2006, 2007, I would attend a lot of these World Economic Forum meetings, which were called, you know, in the Middle East and in Davos. And there would be special panel discussions about the Middle East. And all of these learned speakers would say, you know, the Middle East is known for its young demographics. You know, 60% of the population below the age of 30. So when you look at it today, you're looking at about 200 million Arab youth. And these speakers would then talk about why the youth is really the wealth of the nation and that the biggest problem the region has is unemployment and they need to create 100 million jobs in the next 10 years. And I would hear that year on year with no changes. And then I said, what do these people know about the Arab youth? And I realized that our region, the Middle East region, is so data poor. And I saw a huge opportunity to do something that makes a difference for the region. So we started that in a small way, John, in 2008. And I can tell you, we did about nine countries. We did about 1,600 or 1,800 interviews with young people. And I tell you, nobody really looked at it with great amount of importance because the region didn't have the kind of legacy to look at evidence-based data to inform policymaking. But something changed in 2011, and that was the Arab Spring. And that is the time, as you know, John, you know, it was the young who went on the street and demanded change in all of these various large populous countries like Egypt and Tunisia and all of the other countries that we know about. And suddenly, when we announced our survey in 2011, I still remember we had an in-camera briefing for Arab diplomats in Washington, D.C. And we said, we are going to give you the results of our Arab youth survey. And that was the third Arab youth survey. The room was chock-a-block with Arab diplomats furiously writing notes because they needed to report it back to their government. That's when we really hit the spot and things suddenly changed because when you looked at data in 8, 9 and 10 and for anybody, they could see the Arab Spring happening because one of the first findings and all of this is public. It's on our website, the Arabyouthsurvey.com. You will see that one of the biggest demands Arab youth had is they wanted to live in a democracy. 90 plus percent wanted to live in a democracy. If only people listen to it, they'd say, This is what's going to happen. And yet that issue doesn't come up at all in the current survey. The current survey talks about people wanting an end to corruption. But the democracy question 
isn't there. Is that because Arab youth no longer care about democracy? Have they lost faith in democracy? I mean, what's happened to the democracy issue, which, as you say, was so evident in early yeah. years of the survey? It's interesting because, you know, when you look at trending data, and that's the importance of looking at what's happening out there in, in the market in these countries and what these young people are thinking, feeling. It's about their hopes, their fears, their aspirations. That's what we go and check out every year. So, you know, in the early years of Arabic, there was a euphoria that, you know, there's going to be change, you know, that we will get our right, you know, and we will be treated with respect and we'll get the jobs we want and things like that. You know, six years down the line, we did another survey where we asked the same question. And we asked this question every year. What are the barriers that stop you from getting a better future for the region? What was number one in terms of want to live in a democracy fell down to number seven because more and more young people, you know, the economies were struggling. There were not enough jobs. And then we realized that the young people, while they went on the street, they could see some change. But then, you know, the realities of life hit them. And in that year, I still remember our top finding was we called it the Arab winter. And we said, you know, I think young people are now focusing on the here and now. They are looking at the kitchen table issues. How do you decide what to drop and what to add? So, you know, it's a fairly painstaking task. You know, one of the 50% of the work we do is how we design our questionnaire. And, and roughly around this time of the year is when we start preparing that questionnaire. And so there are certain questions which we keep because we want to ensure that we capture the trending data, whether it's about what people think about democracy or what they think about religion or what they think about the governments or those kinds of questions. But every year we pick up anything that is recent and relevant. And in 2019, when we designed the questionnaire for the 2020 survey, you know, what defined the region were a couple of things. There were four countries that were actually going into major protests and they were protesting against corruption in government. They were protesting against leadership that is not giving them enough opportunity to be able to start with life, get proper education, access to education, access to opportunities. That's what they were protesting. And in all these four countries, it resulted in regime change, in change in government, whether it's Lebanon, whether it's Algeria, whether it is Sudan or the fourth country, Lebanon, Algeria, Sudan and Iraq. So Iraq, there was a new prime minister that came. Uh, Algeria, you know, after 20 years, Bouteflika had to resign and not contest. We had uh, President Bashir in jail right now after nearly three decades of rule. And of course, Lebanon, I think the story is uh, pretty much known. You know, we had change of uh, Saad Hariri and all the other changes. And now we happened. have Saad Hariri. And we have now Saad Hariri back. So that your question, John. So we, we structure those questions. We look at protests were linked to corruption in government. And of course, to struggling economies in those countries as well. So, you know, unemployment, as you know, John, you know, the region has one of the highest youth unemployments in the world, right. close to 30 percent. So it is not surprising when you look at this. You talk about how youth unemployment is, is higher in the Middle East than almost anywhere else. One of the other places where the Middle East is exceptional in is the World Economic Forum. It says the gender gap in the Middle East is higher than any region in the world. Yet your survey found that both men and women feel that the gender gap isn't that big an issue. Is that surprising to you? Not at all. In fact, you know, this finding particularly jumped at us. You know, I think it's the, probably the most important finding. We kind of bring the top 10 findings. But this one was indeed very, very surprising because 
You know, there is a stereotype, especially built up in the West, about Arab women being subjugated. I think that stereotype is led by, for example, women not being allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia, and that has changed today. But when we went out, remember, we are talking to young men and women in the age group of 18 to 24. And when we saw that nearly 64% of the young women say that they have the same rights as men, or another 11% think they have more rights than men. And then, of course, you know, what was surprising is when we asked a question, but, you know, they feel that a woman working will actually benefit the family. 76% of the women said yes, but 70% of the men as well said yes, a working woman benefits the family. And we see that as a very dramatic finding because we are talking about perceptions of these young people, how they see the future. And in fact, you refer to the World Economic Forum data. Besides presenting the data in our white paper that we publish on our website, we invited Mina Loraibi, who's the editor of The National, to write about this finding. And she actually sparked a discussion because she challenged the findings. And we wanted that challenge to happen because discussion is more important. We bring a white paper so policy papers look at it. And I do not dispute any of that of what she's saying, but it's an important part to look at, okay, this is the facts on the ground. Women probably do not have enough opportunity and are not enough in the workforce. But the perception of these young people who are getting into life, getting into these jobs, are that there is equal opportunity. This bodes really well for policymakers in government. They're looking at a young population that has an unbelievably modern mindset. And that is an extremely positive sign for governments to pick up, to businesses to pick up. And the other possibility is that there's some problem in understanding what people think by judging from poll results. We just, in the United States, as you know, had an election that whose results defied pollster expectations for the second cycle. There have been all sorts of debates about are people afraid to tell pollsters that they support President Trump? Certainly, in a lot of places in the Middle East, it is illegal to criticize the government. How should we think about these results in terms of people giving what they think are socially acceptable answers to somebody they don't know versus understanding that there's a reality that the general outside public hasn't understood, but people in the Middle East do understand? How do we figure out which of those is correct? So, you know, John, a couple of things on our survey. First of all, it's conducted by the BCW Group Company, PSB. So we use very modern techniques to be able to do these interviews. We use professional field interviewers to go across to these 17 countries. We accost people in public places. We seek their agreement. We assure them that these are confidential interviews. We ask 22 screener questions to make sure that they fall in the sample in the right place. And then those interviews are conducted in a very, very professional manner. These are face-to-face, they are not online interviews. So the reliability and the credibility of that process, it is costlier for us to run it. And remember, John, this study is entirely funded and run by us. There are a number of people who are offered sponsorships of this study and we absolutely refuse because I think in the findings would be up questioning if that would happen, if there were any interest. So, you know, I'm not there to comment about polling in the United States. But, you know, the fact that we go to great lengths to make sure that what we do is properly looked at. And sometimes when the data comes from certain countries where we we question, you know, the nature of that data, it doesn't reflect the actual realities on the ground. We at times refield 
that survey in that particular country or particular region. We go to great lengths to ensure that the data is stable and that's reliable. And we ensure that there is enough budgets and people who are able to do these. I was struck that 100% of Emiratis who you surveyed approved of the way the government's responded to COVID-19. I can't speak for the Emirates. I know that there's a, a huge reservoir of trust that Emiratis have in their government, but I don't think you can get 100% of Americans to agree that the earth is round. I mean, just if you poll people, 100% results, to my mind, set off flashing lights about, is there a reason we're getting this answer that, that is other than what people would think? As I said, I, I can't think of a single thing where you could poll Americans and get 100% agreement. The Emiratis are very patriotic in the way they look at things, you know, and, and to some extent, I think they find what the government has done. And, and actually, on another project, we've been looking at how the government is seen by expatriates and by nationals as well. And we see high amount of favorability among expatriates on what the government is doing. Sometimes some are very restrictive. There are fines for people who don't wear masks on in public places, for example. And you and I have seen tremendous change tremendous advancement. You moved there 25 years ago. I first went there about 20 years ago. And the place has been transformed on, on any number of levels. But there is this fact that Emiratis, I think in particular, and, and, and other residents in general, feel quite constrained about expressing concerns. One thing that recently created some consternation in the rest of the region was what are sometimes called the Abraham Accords, this UAE Israel peace agreement. I was talking with an Emirati professor who said, I think about a third of people think it's a good idea, about a third of people think it's a bad idea, and about a third of people don't care. But it's hard to judge that if you did a poll. I think most Emiratis would feel that if anything public facing, you would have to be very careful. Is there a, a utility as you think about understanding where Arabs in general are, where you think about Emiratis? But I think it's a broader issue. Is there a need to think about other kinds of information gathering, whether looking at social media posts or other things to supplement traditional polling because of perhaps an expectation that that people are going to be more careful talking to pollsters? You know, the explosion of use of social media in the region is really fundamentally because the young people do not believe censored state media. And your poll is one of the best ways to judge just how central social media has become in the way young people get information. If you look at the longitudinal information, it's incredible. Yeah. So when you look at that, I mean, YouTube, Twitter, Snapchats, uh, Pinterest, some of the largest followings in the world are in this region. And, And that explosion happened because young people want to have a different point of view they want to have a worldview. So the, the way they have consuming media, I mean, look at streaming services like Netflix or Stars Play or, uh, or Disney or any of the others. I mean, some of the highest per capita consumptions are here in this region. The young people are hungry to look at what's out there. And, and there is a reason for that. And that is because they get a different point of view. Sunil, what's the impact of the survey been this year? Oh, this year, there has been an unbelievable response. We normally come out with the results of the survey in the month of April. But because of the pandemic, we said, you know, nobody has the mind space to be able to look at an Arab Youth survey or any of its findings. 
So we delayed the launch of the findings until October 6th. But we took the opportunity to do a COVID pulse survey in August of this year. You know, our top finding was that nearly 40% of young Arabs want to emigrate from their nation. And that finding jumped at us. And that was the lead of our story that went across the world. And that's why we're very proud that, you know, we reached nearly 43 nations in 14 languages and reached nearly close to a billion people in two weeks. So this year, the impact has been fantastic. And you can, of course, download our entire report if you go to ArabYouthSurvey.com. There's a wonderful white paper that we've published with about seven, eight good commentaries from experts. So people who don't know the region really well, if they go through the report, I mean, you will understand the region and what it's all about. Because it's finally the largest demographic that defines the future of this region. Understanding their hopes, their fears, and their aspirations is understanding the Middle East. And that's why we do the survey every year. Sunil John, the Arab Youth Survey is a remarkable reservoir of information, of insight, of analysis. You can find a current copy at ArabYouthSurvey.com. Thank you very much for doing the survey, and thank you very much for joining us today on Babel. Next up, John, Natasha, and I discuss our own methods for conducting research and holding interviews. So in pre-COVID times, we spent a lot of time talking to people in the field, as Sunil John's interviewers did. From your own experience in the field, what can you learn and what can be deceiving? As an interviewer, how do you know what to look out for? In my experience, I would say that it probably has to do with four main things. It has to do with where you're interviewing them. I mean, in this survey, I believe Sunil said that they accosted people in public places. And I find that pretty alarming because I would never answer these questions to a stranger anywhere in the Middle East. And that's informed by experience. When I was interviewing Iraqi refugees in Syria at the time, in some cases, the Mukhabarat would actually be visibly following us from cafe to cafe. And then, I mean, the second thing that I would think of is, is what are you asking? Are you asking something relatively benign, like somebody's favorite flavor of ice cream? Or is it hard to pay the bills this year? Or are you asking about corruption and democracy? Because I saw another Arab World survey that asked people about support to normalization with Israel, for example. And in most countries, people are against it, except there's a small positive response in places like Egypt or Sudan places which have either normalized relations or, you know, in the process of doing so. But there was an abnormally high percentage in Saudi Arabia, in a place where they're not really sure where the government stands of nearly, you know, 30% non-response. And then I think the third and fourth things that I would consider is, can you give them anything based on their answers? I used to interview refugees for resettlement to the U.S. And so obviously that was going to tinge people's answers to certain questions. And then I guess also, you know, who do they perceive you to be? Actually, earlier on in my career, I think people may have been even more frank with me because perhaps I wasn't perceived as much of a threat or as serious. In Jordan, for example, when I was doing sort of educational development work, I think people were fairly upfront with me. I was a young Fulbrighter and they probably just didn't see me as much of a threat to them. On that note of foreigners, but also perception, Natasha, so your full name is Natasha Hall, but you are Arab American. Do you ever go by Hamarne Hall as a way to connect with people when you're doing research, or do you specifically not do that? 
do people's perceptions of you as Arab versus American versus Arab American play into how they respond to your questions? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It goes without saying. I mean, I'll point to a couple other examples from way back in my Fulbright days in Jordan, which is where I'm originally from, but obviously speak with an American accent and was uh, born and raised in the U.S. One instance where people did not know that was I was sitting in on classrooms doing sort of ethnographic research. And I sat in on one grade school class and suddenly the teacher kind of shifted the entire conversation to talking about tolerance of Christians and foreigners. And clearly this was for my benefit. But on the sort of the opposite side of that, when I was in Man, I was hanging out with the high school principal. And as soon as she found out my family name, suddenly she became very upfront about not only criticizing the king, which is something that I should say people do not do in Jordan really ever, but even the lineage. And I was quite shocked by that, but I think she felt more at ease knowing that I came from a family that, especially at one point, more vigorously sort of opposed the monarchy. So it certainly has an effect and it could have a negative or a positive effect depending on where you are. As a researcher, certainly who has referred me to somebody, where I got somebody's name from, how I ended up to talk to them, affects what they're willing to say to you. People are used to thinking about the context of conversations. And I think we often think that people are used to pollsters and it doesn't matter who somebody is or where they're from. You'll just say your opinion because your opinion matters and it's your constitutional right to express your views. And in much of the Middle East, they don't think about constitutional rights. They think about why am I having this conversation? And what are both the potential upsides and the potential downsides of conducting it in different ways? And the downsides, I should say, are really quite severe in the Middle East. I want to emphasize the fear that's kind of entrenched in a lot of people. I mean, I remember speaking to a friend of mine who ended up being on the opposition side in Syria. But he talked about when he was a young man and there was essentially a, a referendum on Bashar al-Assad, which, you know, obviously leads to 98% for Bashar al-Assad. And, you know, he said, well, yeah, of course I went to vote. Yes. And I thought, well, why would you do that? And he's like, well, because everyone always talked about the trouble. What trouble? I don't know. Nobody knew what trouble it was, but there was enough fear that someone might know that they didn't go out to vote for Bashar al-Assad, that people would go in mass to do so also something to keep in mind. But the flip side of this is, I'm not sure that young people treat it the same way that their parents did. I think there is a way in which social media and watching a diversity of views on television has created a climate where more people do feel that they can express their views. More people do feel it's legitimate to express a range of views. I remember going to Egypt in the early 90s and, and somebody told me, well, I support the Arab view. And I looked at this woman, I said, what do you mean the Arab view? And certainly after Al Jazeera, after all the, the hundreds of satellite television stations, there's an acceptance, there's not an Arab view, there's not one position to take. And I think young people who've grown up in that environment are more open to it, but they're open to it in some circumstances. Yeah, and I think social media, not just news media, but social media and Twitter and where there's so much more anonymity provides for a lot more of that space. 
for people to share their opinions one way or the other without as much retribution. Is there benefits or is there an ability to do research off of that type of social media? Can you rely on that to understand public opinion at all? Certainly governments are investing a lot in researching social media. There are tools that have been developed that allow governments to gauge things based on what's appearing in social media. The, the challenge that I see, and I'm not a millennial, so I might be the wrong person to talk about this, but it seems to me that a lot of social media is based on broadcasting and not listening. And there's an inclination on social media to say things that get attention rather than necessarily what people mean. And I wonder if that dynamic of trying to sense what people are saying to get attention misleads you about what people mean, misleads you about moods, or does the sense that people say, well, I have anonymity because there are millions of tweets out there and it doesn't matter what I say, does that make people freer to say precisely what they mean? I think the answer is probably somewhere in between and figuring out where the truth lies, how all the sentiment analysis on social media tells you some things you can't learn from surveys, but misleads you about some things you could learn from surveys. I think it's a real challenge for people who are understanding where are people's heads really at. I agree. I think it's obviously there's positive connotations for social media in the Arab world in particular. You can spread information about an exciting new initiative uh, more easily. You have ready access to news in any part of the world. But there's a few major, major drawbacks. And one of them that I have seen in the Arab world and in the United States is the spread of disinformation, which I mean, in addition to just being a negative in itself, it's also really debilitating to real progress. And I think if Arab authoritarian regimes really master this, the democratic movements and progress that we've seen is in real trouble, as I think we're in trouble also in the United States. But it's also a superior you know, surveillance tool. And it's not a coincidence that Syria ended its ban on YouTube and Facebook in 2011 as the Arab Spring was sweeping through the region. And I think any former spy will tell you that social media cuts down the work that they need to do substantially because you're basically just giving away your personal information for free. To backtrack a little bit to what you said a little while ago, Natasha, you mentioned a referendum in Syria that got 98% responses in one direction. And John, you and Sunil talked about the surveys finding that 100% of Emiratis thought that the government's response to COVID-19 was great. What do you do as a researcher when you have responses that are so different from what you expected to find? Is that a signal that something's off with your methodology or your research questions? You know, I frankly think that every time you get an answer, you should take it as a piece of truth, but not the whole truth. You know, you can go do a survey in the halls of CSIS back in the days when we were open, and you can say, I, I did research in Washington, and I found all Washingtonians agree. Everybody in Washington agrees on certain things, and everybody in the building will agree, but you can go two blocks away to another think tank, or you can go to people who aren't in think tanks at all, and they'll tell you something totally different. And I think there's a way in which we tend as researchers to talk to people who are willing to talk to researchers, who are used to talking to researchers, who see an advantage to talking to researchers. And you can think that because they either don't speak English or speak English with an accent, that gives you unique and true insights that you don't have to be critical of because you have gotten it from the source. 
the reality is there are lots of sources. And as any researcher, you're only going to get a sliver of the picture. But I think the question is, so what do you learn and what might you not have learned? And to have some humility about how much we really understand about the whole and how the whole works together. I don't think there's an easy way out of the challenge here. It could be that having somebody from the country as the questioner makes people more likely or less likely to be honest, depending on the line of questioning. It could be that the age of the questioner, the gender of the questioner, there are all kinds of things that that, that I think uh, a respondent would take into account. It seems to me there's a lot of wisdom in what Shimon Peres used to say, that poles are like perfume. They should be smelled, but not drunk. You need to learn from them. They need to be suggestive. But it seems to me that polling should be the beginning of research and not the end of it. On that very profound note, thank you both for joining me and tune in next week for a meze on Lebanon's electricity martyrs. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.